This episode of the O'Reilly Data Show is all about Apache Spark 2.0. I sat down with uh, Apache Spark's release manager, Michael Arbrus, and he walks me through a very interesting new feature of Spark streaming called Structured Streaming. It's a way for users to do streaming analytics without actually having to reason about streaming. I hope you enjoyed that. Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Here today with Michael Armbrus, one of the architects of Apache Spark, also a senior software engineer at Databricks. And uh, full disclosure, I am an advisor to Databricks. However, today we'll be talking strictly about Apache Spark. Welcome to the data show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Uh, so first off, let's introduce you to our listeners. Um, so you were part of that same crew that came out of the RAD and AMP Lab in uh, Berkeley. So what did you study in graduate school? Yeah, so the RAD Lab was pretty much focused around building scalable systems and making it easy for your average developer to work on something that could scale to hundreds of millions of users without having to build a significant engineering organization in order to make that possible. So in particular, my thesis was working on something called uh, scale-independent query processing where the idea was we were asking the question, can you build a database where it will tell you ahead of time if you're doing anything that's going to get you in trouble down the road? So if it works for 10 users, it'll promise that it's also going to work when you go viral. So did you ever think uh, of going into academia, becoming a professor, or were you always... uh... Uh, in the industry practitioner track. Yeah, I you know I went back and forth, but uh, actually after I finished my PhD, I did go and do a, a postdoc, kind of with the the intention of going into academia. So I was uh, a postdoc in the F1 group. That's the at, at Google. That's their distributed database that actually sits underneath the ad system. Oh, so when you say postdoc, you were still at that point thinking of publishing papers and things like that. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And so then at some point, uh, you went to Databricks, the startup behind Apache Spark. Um, so why leave Google? Google is like the uh, kind of the heaven for big data <laughs> and distributed systems, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And in fact, I learned a ton while I was at Google. Um, so really what happened was when I, when I got to Google, the first thing I wanted to try and do was take the ideas, uh, this scale-independent query processing from my thesis, and try to apply it to the F1 database. But when I sat down to actually implement it, what I found was the query optimizer was actually pretty hard to modify. And this is actually true of, of most query optimizers in most databases. They end up being these kind of monstrous beasts. And uh, you know, threading information through them or adding new rules can be fairly difficult. So this led to they're always another research. Me- they're always measured in this absurd number of man hours, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think, uh, in fact, my advisor had a saying, uh, Mike Franklin, that it takes ten years to build the database, and I think a big part of that is you know the query optimizer part of it. But so you know, and then this kind of set us down. You know, when you're working on research, it's actually good when something ends up being too hard. That's like a, a very positive sign that you're working on a good problem. And so we decided to kind of take a step back and ask ourselves, how should you build an optimizer in order for it to be extensible and easy to work with? And so we started working on a prototype. It was uh, written in Scala. And the idea was um, it was a purely functional optimizer that was composable, where you could add rules. And this is something that has so been... So this practiced. was inside Google? Yeah, this was inside Google at this so, point. So w- w- hold on there. Uh, Scala <laughs> inside Google? 
Uh, yeah, that, that's actually, uh, we we got in a little bit of trouble all the way up the, the chain. Uh, they told us they would never put it into production. Um, and they actually ended up re-implementing it in C++. But it was a, a pretty good way to prototype this idea. So then from us, uh, people who aren't in the data management database field, but are in technology, they hear a lot about uh, optimizers. But uh, why are people still working on optimizers after all these years? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, the, the the nice thing about optimizers is they will make your code run faster. And so, you know, while we know a lot of the, the bread and butter that makes it work, as, you know, we apply more and more problems, as you kind of move databases into the big data space, there's a whole new set of optimizations that you want. So kind of the idea here, so that to, to go back to the story, basically what happened was we started working on this prototype and then I, you know, ended up talking to Ali, the, the CEO of Databricks, and he said, you know, if you want to build this thing for real, Apache Spark is the place to do it. And so we kind of took those ideas from this research project, and that's what became Catalyst. Oh, I see. So uh, so you ended up at Databricks, and at that, po- at that uh, point in time, uh, basically SQL on Spark was this thing called Shark. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, what were your, what was your reaction when you saw Shark? Yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I joked with Reynolds that when I joined Databricks, my goal was to kill Shark. Um, I mean, Shark was a great idea. I think, you know, peop- it turns out that uh, SQL is the language for a lot, uh, a wide range of users. And so having the ability to take SQL queries and execute them using the Apache Spark runtime is an incredibly powerful way to, to accomplish uh, a, a whole bunch of big data tasks. But kind of the problem with Shark was it was using too much of Hive. So it was using Hive optimizer and Hive's query planner, and then really just taking the execution and running on top of Spark. And so it was exactly the problems I was seeing when I was at Google, where when Hive was missing an optimization or it wasn't understanding the Spark runtime, it was going to be very difficult for us to adapt it. And so this was a a perfect place to try and apply some of those ideas of how to build uh, an extensible optimizer. And that, that is what became Catalyst. So let's let's put this in the context uh, of Spark version. So when did the uh, Spark SQL first appear in Spark? Yeah, so we dropped the first uh, first uh, version of Spark SQL in Spark 1.0. Uh, and at that point, it was experimental. It only did SQL, but uh, you know we already had an idea that this was going to be a, a pretty exciting part of the project. And so uh, so now by uh, by now, I guess uh, basically Shark. It's no longer being used by many people. And so people have gravitated towards Spark SQL. So what version did kind of Spark SQL finally take over? Yeah, that's so I think really the another major turning point in the history of Spark SQL is uh, you know, Spark 1.3 when we added the data frame API. That was really the moment where we realized that, you know, not only was it going to replace Shark, but actually it was going to start to supplement RDDs. And so, so what was the what was that time frame between one point zero and one point three? How that's how long was that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it was it's about six months. So we we do four releases a year. So I guess yes, a little over six months. Interesting, interesting. So basically, within six months, you had rewritten the SQL engine and optimizer and introduced the concept of data frame. Yep. Yeah, it was it's it's pretty cool. I think one of the things that I wasn't expecting when I when I came to Databricks and started working on Spark is just how active the community is. Within I think, you know, two releases, we were already up to a hundred people, you know, having contributed to just the SQL part, which is, you know, a, a velocity and an excitement that I think is kind of, you know, unprecedented in a lot of different projects. 
So now earlier on, you said that these SQL optimizers take years to refine and harden, right? So mm-hmm. Spark SQL is still relatively young then, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, we continue to add tons of new rules to the optimizer with every release. And I think actually the thing that I like the most about this is I'm not actually that involved in the day-to-day of what's going into the optimizer. It's a whole bunch of people from the community who basically what happens is they run a query, it runs slower than they would expect. uh, And then they look at the query plan. They're like, hey, it could have figured this out automatically, this optimization that I wanted to perform. And so they'll open a pull request with, you know, 100 lines of code. And now that same optimization will be, you know, enjoyed by all of the users of Spark in the next release. So data frames also opened up Spark to people in other language communities that had no, the same notion of data frames. But, uh, and also they had their own API, for example, Pandas and R. How do those APIs relate to the SQL API? Are they, do they use the same execution engine? Absolutely. So, you know, basically, I think these are just different ways to construct data flow. So, you know, SQL is one way that a lot of people are familiar with. But as you said, a lot of people are also familiar with the the pandas way of constructing data flow. And no matter which of these APIs you use, you're constructing the same type of kind of logical data flow. And then from there on, it's using the exact same execution engine. So the nice part of this is no matter which language you're coding in, you end up getting the same performance since it's the same optimized execution engine that's actually, you know, doing the query processing underneath the covers. Yeah, and I think uh, those of us who used Spark in the early days will remember that uh, you know the things that you can express uh, simply in SQL, you had to think about in uh, when you were going to use this parallel operators because there was always there were always these talks at Spark meetups and Spark conferences about what's the right sequence of operators to use in what order. Yeah, <laughs> and now obviously the optimizer. Uh, just ha- handles all of that complexity for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's that kind of data, you know, flow reasoning is just not something that people should have to think about. Computers are actually better at it than most users, so you might as well just let the optimizer handle it. So, what's uh, Spark SQL in terms of where is it in terms of SQL compliance? Can you do basically standard SQL anything? Uh, so it's not completely uh, standard SQL compliant yet, but each release gets closer and closer. I think we're running, uh, I think, 70 to 80 of the TP- uh, out of 100 TPCDS queries. The major things that are missing right now are subqueries. I think that's the, the biggest uh, outstanding feature. Um, and there's actually a couple of pull requests to, to add that feature. So probably not in Spark 2.0, but I think in Spark 2.1, 2.2 timeframe, you'll be able to run the entire TPCDS benchmark. And at that point, I think we've got a lot of the, you know, the, the main features that people are looking for when they, when they talk about SQL compliance. So now recently, you also introduced the notion of data sets. So for people who aren't following Spark closely, what's the difference between data frames and data sets? Yeah, that's a great question. So we got a lot of positive feedback about data frames, that people liked the high-level way of expressing problems, and uh, that they liked the fact that the optimizer and execution engine were automatically making it faster. But a common complaint that we got was that it was missing some of the stuff that you were getting when you were coding with RDDs. And in particular, this was coming primarily from Scala and Java users, where they're used to having the compiler actually check the code and make sure that you know the methods that they're calling actually exist and are returning the correct type. 
types. And so it was this type safety that was completely missing from both SQL and data frames. And uh, this was preventing a lot of people from taking advantage of that. They were staying on RDDs instead of, uh, you know, upgrading to this, this automatically optimized code path. And the idea of data sets is to really take that type safety and allow you to work with objects from your domain, your own custom objects, you know, in the context of the, the Spark SQL optimizer and execution engine. So the way I like to explain this is, you know, a data set is a distributed collection of objects and a data frame is just a specialization of a data set that holds these generic row objects, just like you would get from, you know, JDBC or, you know, any other kind of SQL interop system. So for people who are thinking, who think in terms of databases, these are just tables. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good way to think of it. Um, so for people who are in big data, but aren't involved in the minutia of all of these storage formats and layouts. Uh, so very briefly describe all of these things. You know, I'm talking here, Michael, in terms of parquet, arrow, <laughs> all of yeah. these things. So at a high level, what should people care about? Yeah, that's a good question. So one thing is, uh, you know, Spark actually purposefully tries to be fairly agnostic to this. It turns out that data has a significant amount of inertia, and sometimes it's not your decision which format your data is going to be stored in. And so I think one of the things we really got right, starting in Spark 1.2, was opening up the, the data sources API so that people could plug in arbitrary formats, and then Spark could be the narrow waste of data processing. And people have added uh, connectors for all sorts of things. We've got Cassandra, we've got HBase, we've even got things like DBase. So that said, though, this does actually affect performance quite a bit. And especially in Spark 2.0, we've spent a ton of time optimizing our interoperability with Parquet. Uh, for those of uh, the people listening who, who don't know too much about Parquet, the right way to think about this is it's a, a pretty efficient binary format that stores uh, data by column instead of by row. And what that means is if you have a really wide table, but you're only querying a subset of the columns, we can actually skip reading all of the columns that you don't care about, which for a lot of uh, analytics operations can result in huge, huge savings in, in terms of network bandwidth and, and runtime. And it seems to have worn out in terms of these columnar storage formats, right? Yeah, it's definitely the most popular way to store data with Spark SQL. Although I will say we also have pretty good support for ORC, which is a competing form. So what uh, what's this new project, Apache Arrow, for our listeners? Yeah, so Arrow is designed, it's another columnar format. Uh, the idea here is it's a little bit cheaper to decode than Parquet. And the idea here is it's, it's supposed to be good for interop on a single machine. Uh, so when you, know, you take uh, data from Spark and you want to send it over to Pandas, you could do that with Arrow, and then neither side would have to pay the cost of doing serialization and deserialization. We don't yet have support for Arrow, but we're definitely looking in that space because I think interoperability with single node tools is kind of a key place where you know, Spark is significantly more usable than, than, than competing projects. And so we're, we're definitely keeping our eye on that. When so we're looking so to, you said in, single node tool? Yeah, so some, something like Pandas or R. Oh, so a super common use case for, for Spark SQL is you've got data that's too big for a single node and you'll use Spark SQL or data frames or data sets to do aggregations and filters and joins and get it down to something that will fit in memory. And then you can use pandas and R and the, the tools that you're familiar with. So there's another, there was another um, big project initiative within the Spark community that people on the outside may not be familiar with. Uh, here I'm referring to Tungsten. So 
explain what tungsten is, Project Tungsten, and what is the current state of it? Yeah, good, good question. Tungsten is, uh, it's basically the, the code name for the execution engine of Spark SQL. Uh, the idea here, we use tungsten because we're trying to get down to the bare metal, uh, even though we're running on top of the JVM. So the first version of Spark SQL, the goal was basically just to replace Hive and have good coverage. So any SQL query that you could run in Hive, uh, you, you could run in Spark SQL. But once we accomplished that, then we wanted to really push it further. And you know, performance is, is the first place that, that people are usually, usually looking for, one of the, the key things that bring them to Spark at all. So what Tungsten is, is we're actually using a bunch of really low-level techniques. So we do uh, runtime code generation, and we use this uh, internal library inside of the JVM called Sun Misc Unsafe. And together, what this allows us to do is get performance that is actually pretty close to handwritten C++ code. Well, all you have to do is write SQL. And so uh, wh where is it now in terms of, uh, so it's, it's obviously already shipped with Spark, but uh, how much work is still needed to do in order to harden it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, good question. So we, with the first release of Tungsten, uh, was Spark 1.5. Uh, so that was about you know a half a year ago. In uh, in Spark 1.6, we turned it on by default. And in Spark 2.0, pretty much all of the major operators in the execution engine have been switched over. Uh, that said, uh, performance is you know never done. You can always make things faster. And so in this most recent release, one of the really cool things that we've done as part of the Tungsten Initiative, we were always doing code generation. But now we've actually taken code generation to the next level uh, by fusing the code from multiple operators into a single bit of generated code, which can result Bolted to up to 20x speedups, uh, you know, for, for certain types of queries. And so I guess, you know, I would say that Tungsten is there. Tungsten is running through all of Spark SQL, um, but it's probably never going to be done because uh, we're, we're never going to be satisfied with the performance. So we can always, always do better. So we've talked a lot about uh, Spark SQL, which is basically analytics on these structured data sets. The other popular component of Spark is Spark Streaming. And in your recent talk at Stratus NSA, which, by the way, I haven't told you this, was one of the most popular talks in terms of attendance, um, you started uh, talking about the kind of this merge, the merging of streaming and batch into this notion of structured streaming. So yeah. explain, explain to the listeners uh, your guys' vision of uh, how streaming should work. Absolutely. So... First, for a little bit of context, you know, Spark Streaming was one of the first APIs to unify batch and streaming on a single execution engine. And since then, uh, you know, the, the landscape has evolved significantly. There's all of these really cool input sources like Kafka, uh, which actually give you a lot better guarantees, right? You can actually do things like replay streams in the case of failures. And so given all of these changes and, and the increased uh, reliance on things like event time, we decided to sit back and really look at, from a user perspective, how we could make streaming fundamentally simpler. And I think the right mental model for looking at this is we want to do the same thing to Shark that we did to Spark Streaming. You know, we want to kind of preserve all of the, the niceties and the high-level APIs that people like, but we want to really rethink what's going on underneath the covers and make the optimization and kind of the, the planning of how to actually accomplish the query, uh, you know, automatic and, and happen through, through Catalyst and, and Tungsten. So uh, the, the right way to think about the, the Spark Structured Streaming API is it's just data frames. Uh, the, the kind of line we've been using is that the easiest way to get streaming right is to not actually think about the streaming part. 
So you use the exact same data frame API or SQL API that you know and love, uh, but now instead of applying it to batch data sources where all of the data is there at the beginning, you apply it to data sources where data is going to be continuously arriving. And what this means is that once you come up with your query flow, instead of saying collect to you know execute a batch job and return the answer, you say start, which actually begins what's called a continuous query, which runs over and over again, Every time new data is available, Spark will kind of automatically figure out how to incrementally process only what has arrived you know, since the last time we, we did some processing and then you know, output the answer in an efficient way. But the, the main thing here is you express your streaming analytics in the same way that you're expressing your batch analytics, which um, in many ways is, you could have argued was possible uh, before structured streaming, it's just that you had to use these parallel operators. Now it's even simpler because you're using SQL and Pandas and R API, right? Exactly. So that that kind of like complete unification of API is one part of it. But then another part is we actually built in some of the primitives that uh, you know the original version of Spark Streaming would make you uh, uh, construct by hand. A really good example of this is event time aggregation. So a super common use case, you know, I've got a stream of events coming in, and I just want to count how many uh, you know, records per second are arriving. Uh, the problem is that data might arrive late. So if data shows up five minutes late, I will attribute it to the wrong timestamp. And so what you want to do with event time is instead of basing the time on when you know, the, the data actually arrives in the processing system, you want to use the timestamp that's actually recorded in the data itself. And so you could do this with Spark Streaming, but it was up to you as a user to actually maintain the hash table and update the counts from the, the data that arrived before. And uh, unlike the, the, the way that you were doing it there, with structured streaming, you just say group by this time column do an aggregation, and it automatically figures out how to handle late data, how to do the incremental processing for you. So I think one of the lines I liked in your talk is that structured streaming is basically analytics on tables that are growing. So if you use that mental model, people already know how to do analytics on tables. It's just this is a table that keeps growing. Right? Exactly, exactly. You should Basically, you should look at it as though you are just running the query over and over again. And Spark is just doing a really good job of making that each execution very efficient by not repeating work. So where does uh, ML Live fit into this world of structured streaming? Yeah, good question. So uh, MLlib, I think one of you know one of the nicest things that people really like about the Spark stack is it it is this unified platform where you can accomplish everything from loading the data to ETLing the data to doing advanced things like machine learning on the data. And so we've been working very closely with the machine learning team to make sure that we have the right APIs in structured streaming to be able to do things like online training of a model. So as data arrives, you apply it to this model, and then you know each time step you just get the most up-to-date copy of the model. So that's kind of one of the advanced so, use so, cases. So, uh, Michael, if I'm, yeah. uh, if I'm a contributor to MLlib, uh, I contribute one of my algorithms. Do I have to rewrite it to work in this way? That's a tough question, actually. So it, it does turn out that only certain types of algorithms can be adapted to be online. So, you know, it would... It, for, for this particular use case, you would have to have an algorithm where it's possible to, to add data to it as you go. Um, and this is something that we're kind of is still in the, the drawing board phase. I would look for... So, you know, so, probably... so this, uh, this uh, piece of it won't ship with Spark 2.0. Exactly. 
I think in Spark 2.0, the use cases that we really focused on are incremental ETL. So I have data arriving, you know, JSON, text, et cetera. And what I want to do is I want to create like a just-in-time data warehouse where it's efficiently encoded and partitioned in Parquet. That's one use case that we really tried to get into. So, so I, write, I, I write a SQL query, point it to a dashboard, and uh, everything is taken care of. The dashboard gets updated in real time. Exactly. Exactly. So that, and then, yeah, and then this this uh, event time aggregation type stuff. That's the, the kind of second use case that we focused on. So those are, you know. By, I think by, by the way, uh, um, you know, the the classic, the er, the first example of Spark streaming working in a notebook was uh, Ali Godsey's uh, example in the first Spark Summit in San Francisco, where he analyzed something on Twitter. I forget exactly what. But uh, since now you're, since now we keep using the word structured, right? So in structured streaming, how does that affect, what's the implications of structured streaming when you're trying to do streaming on unstructured data like uh, Twitter? Oh, that's a, yeah. So, I mean, one of the, the key things we've always tried to do really well with Spark SQL, I think one of the, 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 my favorite features to watch people actually use is the ability to work with semi-structured data. So JSON was the second data source that we ever added to Spark SQL. It was actually added by an intern in Spark 1.1. And so I think all of that, because this is being built on top of the Spark SQL execution engine, you kind of get for free out of the box. So definitely good support for JSON, good support for text. Uh, you know, basically all of that will be exactly the same as in Batchland. So in your in your talk in Stratus and say actually one of the things I liked, which I've I've uh, come to appreciate, is that you know in the streaming world, because you have this pipeline which may start with a messaging system. To a stream processing system to a persistence layer, people get too focused on the features of each one of these components, and then they forget kind of the, uh, the importance of the end-to-end nature of these pipelines. But I think in your talk, you're starting to emphasize uh, Spark is going to uh, start thinking, the Spark community is thinking in terms of end-to-end semantics, right? Exactly. So I think the hard part of streaming is the fact that it's running all the time and you can't mess up the exactly one semantics when there are failures. And there will be failures if you're running for a very long time. And the problem when you don't own the entire end-to-end part is whichever parts are not owned by Spark, you're basically punting to the user the problem of how do I update this database in an idempotent way? How do I update it in a way that you know provides me snapshot isolation or whatever consistency semantics you're looking for? And so by having really tight integration with both the sources and the sinks for the stream, that means that Spark actually owns the fault tolerance from the beginning to the end and doesn't have to punt those hard problems to the user. So in many ways, actually, my first reaction when I uh, heard about structured streaming was, this is great. If you're a developer, you don't have to think about streaming anymore in many ways, You just uh, or a data scientist. You just reason about streaming the same way that you would do your normal uh, data sets. But I wonder if the you know, a, a stream processing system is evaluated by two constituencies, I think, right? So one is the developers and the data scientists. Then the other one is the infrastructure engineers who always probably still give you guys a hard time that you're micro-batch and not event-based. And uh, you may not have some of the cool features that some of the other stream processing frameworks have. So what's your feeling in terms of uh, of that particular constituency and how will, how will they react to... Uh, structured streaming. So one of the things that I think might happen is this 
the consumers of streaming, you know, the developers and the data scientists will be happy to not have to think about streaming too hard. And I, I guess infrastructure engineers might be happy because they don't have to install too many systems. Too. <laughs> so, but there's still the, you know, in the stream processing framework uh, battles, you're still micro back. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think there's a couple of ways to look at this. So first of all, there's kind of two parts to this. There's, you know, what's going on under the covers? How is the execution actually being done? And how is it presented to users in terms of APIs? So if you look at the kind of initial version of Spark Streaming, I think one of the biggest pain points was batches were part of the API. And if you wanted to do things like windowing, you actually had to reason about the batch interval relative to the windowing interval. So the choices that you made there in terms of execution would actually affect the semantics of the answer that you were we're getting back. So that was something where we, when we were coming up with this model that you were talking about earlier of an infinite table, we took a step back and we said, now that's very confusing. That's definitely not what you want. And so if you look at the API for structured streaming, there's nothing about batches in it. And that's that was a very conscious decision to leave that out uh, so that, you know, basically no matter what the execution strategy is, we can still execute your query correctly and, and give you the, the right answer with exactly one semantics. So your code will run. Yes, your code will run. Your code will return the correct answer, no matter what's going on underneath the covers, no matter what the, the micro batch interval is or, or you know what, what's actually happening in execution. So what that means is two things. First of all, it means that someday we have the freedom to switch the underlying execution engine to be you know tuple at a time, un, unbatched execution. Uh, so that's, I think, one, one way to look at it. And I think actually this is something that Matei is uh, currently investigating with some of his students at MIT is, you know, what, what would that system look like and how would you decide which execution engine to use? So that being oh, said... So, so uh, interesting. So, so basically what you're saying is that uh, because the API has simplified how people interact with streaming, you can basically change the streaming engine and make it uh, not micro-batch anymore. Exactly. And, and exactly. so it doesn't affect people's code, the code will still run. But then, uh, so I guess uh, at that point, then you would have to specify in the code, is, this is streaming, this is batch, no? Yeah, so today, the way that you specify whether or not you're using stream processing or batch processing, it's actually just a function of the data source. So you say, when I'm you know loading from this directory of files, do I want to load it once now, or do I want to continually load it as new files appear? So I think a pretty good example. And that's really the only time that you have to decide whether or not it's going to be a streaming or a batch computation. And really, actually, the word I like to use here is continuous query instead of streaming. Because right. streaming is just an execution detail. Right, right. So then, so then what Matei and the students are investigating is what? What they're looking at is when it makes sense to actually switch the execution engine underneath the covers in a way that's invisible to the user, when micro-batching makes sense, and oh, when pipeline tuple-at-a-time processing makes sense. Oh, I see. Because you could actually even have the micro-batch do most of streaming, and then uh, depending on the rate of arrival of the data, uh, you switch over to this other engine. Exactly. And the user will never have to specify which engine they're using. Exactly. That's pretty nice. So what's the status of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that. I, I specifically said Matei was working at MIT. So that's still in uh, in research land. But I think that's actually another cool part of this project is that we, you know, we came from academia and we maintain tight ties with people who are on the bleeding edge of, of you know, what data processing should look like, you know, not today, but in five or 10 years. 
So let me put you on the spot here, then. Uh, so if you were uh, a stream processing framework user, what dimensions, what key attributes would you evaluate a stream processing engine on? Good question. So I think the things you want so, to look at. So one of the things is this message processing guarantees that at least once, at most once, exactly once, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think that that's one thing. In some use cases, it, you do want to trade off uh, kind of the, the performance for these like lighter guarantees where, you know, you say at least once or at most once. Um, but honestly, I don't think that that's the wide variety of users. As soon as you start, if you're Twitter and you have billions of tuples coming in and it's not actually a super important metric, you just want a rough idea, then yeah, you probably absolutely have to make those kinds of trade-offs. But I think for 95% of users, what you really want is exactly once. And anything other than that, you think you don't want exactly once, but then you're going to be confused when you get duplicate records or when data is missing. So I think you know exactly once is, is probably what you're looking for there. And then, uh, and then there's latency. And then latency is another one. Latency and scalability, I think, are the kind of other, other big dimensions. So in terms of latency, you know, with micro batches, what we're seeing is you can get down to sub-second latencies. If you're looking for high frequency trading level, you know, nanoseconds to microseconds, like that's not, this is not the system for you. You probably want to write something custom. So <laughs> that's interesting. So sub-seconds probably covers probably 98, 99% of, of real-time applications, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then people still describe you as few seconds. So you guys should uh, write some blog posts to set the record straight. Sure, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I think uh, you know, the, way, the way we're looking at this is Spark 2.0 is the, the release of the APIs for structured streaming. You know, the project is only, only three months old at this point. So we want users to have like a, basically a very consistent, very well thought out API experience. But streaming is my primary focus, you know, for, for the foreseeable future. And we're going to do exactly what we did with Spark SQL. You know, it's going to start out good, but every release since then has seen two, 10, 20x speed ups. And I, you know, I think we're going to be able to do exactly the same thing with streaming. So then uh, as you look to the rest of 2016, so basically work uh, by the time this episode airs, you would have just shipped version 2.0. By the end of 2016, you're probably at 2.2, 2.3, yeah. which is basically as you described, uh, Spark SQL started out in version 1 and basically took over SQL and Spark by version 1.2, right? Yeah. So by the end of 2016, structured streaming is probably basically uh, going to be uh, how people do streaming in Spark, number one, and also the underlying engine will be much, much further along. Yeah, that's uh, that's my thought. To give you an idea of kind of what where I think certain features are going to drop. So in Spark 2.0, like I said, it'll be you know reading and writing from files. It will be correct, and the APIs. We spent a lot of time thinking about them, and we'll have the basics of event time aggregation. In the future, the things that we're looking to do are native sessionization, integration with machine learning, and then really optimizing the performance and the latency, as well as integrations with all of the different systems that you want: writing to MySQL, reading from Kafka, reading from Kinesis, writing to Dynamo, etc. And then there's the possibility of this academic project that Matei is working on to appear at some point. Yep. So related to basically just uh, Spark SQL and Spark Streaming, I wanted to uh, get your take on uh, the website Spark Packages that launched, I think, last year. So where is uh, what's the state of that website now? So for our listeners out there, it's spark-packages.org. 
Yeah, so we're really happy with the community that's been forming around Spark packages. Uh, you know, it's very easy to use in Spark. If you just download the version from Apache, you could just say dash dash packages, and it'll automatically install any of the packages available on that website, you know, onto your Spark cluster. So you can use them in your ad hoc analytics or, you know, even in, in you know, compiled programs that you're working on. Uh, we just recently hit the 100 package mark. And I'm very happy to say that, you know, one of the primary use cases, uh, if you look at the, the most popular type of package out there, it's, it is these data sources that I was talking about earlier in the program, where you can plug in and read pretty much any format out there, uh, you know, using Spark as the, the narrow waste of big data processing. And that's something where really, you know, we as the, the kind of core developers could have never had that kind of breadth. And so it's awesome to see the community really kind of fill in all of the gaps there. So how are packages ranked? Let's say I have five different submissions on this, trying to do the same thing. Is it just a kind of a Crowdsource. It's absolutely crowdsourced. We we left it up to the users to decide how to do it. So I think I think the way that we do it is actually you just star the project uh, on GitHub, and that we read that we actually have pretty tight integration with GitHub there, since that's where most most developers like to put their packages, and that ends up ranking uh, you know the packages by how popular they are. So the other thing I wanted to ask you is languages in Spark. So obviously Scala is the main language. So what's the level of compatibility or uh, how should Python and our users feel uh, as they use Spark? Are they second class citizens? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. I get that question a lot, actually. So first of all, let me say Spark has language bindings in Scala, Java, R, and Python. And, uh, you know, unifying these APIs and providing not only, you know, a, a good experience, but a consistent experience with the full power has been a major focus of the 2.0 release. Uh, in particular, if you look at data frames and data sets, uh, we spent a ton of time making sure that they work in both Scala and Java, whether or not you're using Scala 2.10, 2.11, or 2.12, whether or not you're using Java 7 or Java 8 with the new Lambdas. All of that is one single consistent API. So in that place, you know, you kind of just get exactly the same thing no matter which language you're, you're operating in. Uh, when it comes to Python, that is one of that is like the second most popular language for Spark, and it's the one that's seeing I think the most growth. So we spent a bunch of time making sure that structured streaming works well in Python. And the really nice thing here is when you're using data frames, you're not even paying a performance penalty for switching languages. When you when you write data frame code in Python, it's constructing a logical plan that's going to be run inside of the the, the JVM with our our optimized Scala code. Um, in By terms the way, of I had a webcast with Patrick Wendell when I think he first announced the Python support in Spark Streaming, and then he gave a demo, and then people were just like so happy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, and Python is a pretty awesome language. So it's it's definitely a major focus, you know, both in Spark and, and in Databricks. So in terms of looking at Python and R, you know, Python has, you know, pretty much, we're, we're trying to keep it at parity with, uh, with with the Scala Java versions. And if there's something you can't do in Python, I would consider that a bug. So you should file it. In terms of R, it's a little bit different. So, you know, R is wonderful because of all of the, the packages that are available for it. Pretty much any, any machine learning algorithm you want has an implementation in R. However, it's not really a fully featured programming language in the same way that something like Java Scholar or Python is. So what I mostly see people doing with R is they use data frames, they use SQL to, to extract the data down, uh, and then they you know, kind of get it to the single machine size and then they use it. So there's a lot less parallelism. Uh, but that's actually something that we are looking at addressing in future, future releases. We want you to be able to do things like ensemble models or cross-validation, uh, where basically you're leveraging tons of R processes out where Spark 
Spark is managing the parallelism. And then another case that we're spending a lot of time on is the ability to use the parallel machine learning algorithms implemented in MLlib directly from R. So when you have something that doesn't fit on a single machine, you can kind of seamlessly, in the language you like, uh, you know, kind of switch to this, this massively parallel version. Oh, so by the way, before, uh, before we uh, wrap up here, I wanted to, uh, I forgot to ask you about IoT, the Internet of Things and Spark Streaming. So do you think Spark Streaming's latency is good enough for IoT? Absolutely. I mean, I think a, a pretty common use case with IoT is you, you have a bunch of devices that are just dumping data into Kafka, into Kinesis, into some bucket in S3, into HDFS. And really what you want to do there is you want to ask questions about this massive data. And in, for those kinds of use cases, you know, while latency is important, what's really important is throughput. The thing that's kind of different about IoT is just the scale of the data and how dirty and messy and you know, fast arriving it is. And so I think in those cases, really what, what's going to kind of make Spark, Spark Structured Streaming shine is all of the, the catalyst and tungsten optimizations that we were talking about before. That's like how you're going to be able to process that flood of data with very high throughput. So in closing, uh, a few weeks after this episode airs, we'll have the annual Spark Summit, the main Spark Summit in San Francisco. So what are some of the high-level themes in this edition of the Spark Summit? Yeah, so I think you're going to see a lot of streaming, uh, which is pretty exciting. We we saw this in New York, and I think uh, you know this next one. Now that we've had a couple more months to work on it, streaming is definitely going to be huge. So when you the say I, when you say see, that means uh, other people, right? So people, users. Absolutely, yeah. So I think we're going to have some of our first use cases coming out, and then you know us developers will also be presenting, you know, where we're at and where where we're going. So definitely look for some cool demos around around using the new APIs that will have just been released. I think. A Another thing that you're going to see a lot of is a lot of big enterprises are adopting Spark. So it's you know it's no longer just your average Python data scientist. It's big names using it for for real things, and that means things like security and authorization and all, all of this stuff is really coming together to kind of make this a complete package. And so I'm really excited to see a bunch of those kinds of use cases being presented. By the way, uh, I didn't mean to, for this to happen, but uh, do you have anything to say about MLlib? MLlib became kind of an afterthought in our conversation here, but it's also something that a lot of people use. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think what, what you know, where we're trying to push MLlib is, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out how to integrate better with the tools that, that people are already familiar with. So better integration with R, kind of, you know, making all of the models that are available at Scala to the users of R, and then this streaming case. The hardest part of machine learning is, uh, you know, basically you, you, the, the machine learning people who are good at statistics, they're really good at coming up with the features, finding the right algorithm, training a model. But then once they have a model, productionizing it, that's what's hard, is actually taking that model and handing it off to, to the production team. So things that we're looking at are kind of the automatic serialization of models uh, from MLlib. So you can basically take the model that you trained with Spark on a massive amount of data and use it in your production server without any Spark dependencies. So you can just kind of score data that arrives on the fly, very, very low latency. Um, and then also integrating it with streaming so you can even do things like exactly once training on data as it arrives. So in closing, so what are some of the talks that you're excited about in the upcoming Spark Summit in San Francisco? 
Uh, I can't wait for the, the keynote lineup. I think it's going to be absolutely amazing. Uh, we actually got Jeff Dean from Google, uh, and I'm really excited to hear what he says. I think he has a pretty great way of really crystallizing things that are, are pretty abstract. I, I think one of my favorite slides from him was you hear about failures and you hear about kind of fault tolerance and how important it is for things like Spark or Hadoop or whatever. But he had this great slide where he said, if you're a Google engineer, uh, you know, this is the kinds of things you should expect. There's going to be one rack failure. There's going to be, you know, 10,000 disks that fail. And kind of seeing those statistics is, it really crystallizes what it what it's like to operate at that scale. And I'm, I'm pretty excited to hear about some of the new things he's been working on in those terms. So that, that includes probably uh, TensorFlow. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of cool machine learning stuff that uh, that he's going to be discussing. Well, this has been great. And thank you, Michael. And uh, looking forward to the releases of Spark, not just the recent one, Spark 2.0, but the, the ones coming the rest of the year. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. These new developments around structured streaming are pretty exciting. But think of this as an opening salvo, just as it took a few versions before a majority of Spark users moved from Shark to Spark SQL. I anticipate the uh, uh, structured streaming will probably take hold in a few versions down the road. You can follow Michael Armbrust on Twitter at Michael Armbrust. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. <laughs>